Well, please turn once again in your Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, Mark 14. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark. And when we think about the Gospels, Mark included, we realize that the Gospels are not typical biographies. When you read a biography of a man or woman, it follows a typical pattern. Usually you learn something about their background, their heritage, their parents. You learn something about their early life, maybe some significant shaping influences in their early life. And then the author of the biography takes you through a travelogue of the different stages of their life, often focusing on their major accomplishments. And then tells us about how their lives wind down and ultimately lead to their death. And so you have a fairly full picture of the person about whom the biography has been written. But the Gospels are not typical biographies. With Jesus, we do have a genealogy. We have the history of his, his lineage. And we have one incident of his childhood when he was 12 years old and in the temple. And then we have 18, a gap of 18 years of silence where we know nothing about Jesus Christ. Between age 12 and age 30, we presume he was working as a carpenter in his father's shop, but we have nothing about him. The Gospels rather focus on the three years of Jesus' ministry of teaching and, and healing and working miracles. But there's a special concentration on his death. As we've come to chapter 14, there are three chapters, 14, 15, and 16. All of these chapters have to do with the last week of Jesus' life, which involves his sufferings leading up to his death, followed by his resurrection. Why is there such an emphasis in the Gospels on the death of Jesus? Here's the reason. His death was not an ordinary death, because Jesus is the only person in history who was born for the express purpose of dying. Now, all of us will die unless Jesus comes back first. Then we won't have to die. All of us will die. But of none of you can it be said you were born for the purpose of dying. But of Jesus, it could be said he was born for the purpose of dying. Because by his death, he would purchase the salvation of an innumerable number of people who were lost sons and daughters of Adam. He's called the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. His death was planned from eternity past. And his death and his death alone would accomplish eternal salvation for those who put their trust in him. And so the great preoccupation of these final chapters in Mark and all of the Gospels has to do with the death of Jesus and followed by his resurrection. <clears throat> so we've seen that chapter 14 begins with the crafty plotting of his enemies. They're shrewdly planning to kill Jesus, but they don't want to do it during the feast when there are a lot of people. They want to do it after the people have left. This is followed by this woman coming and making this lavish display of devotion to Jesus. She pours out a, a, a year's worth of, of perfume on his head. Jesus took that as anointing for his burial, and so still the focus is on the death of Jesus. And then last week we saw how Judas is planning to betray Jesus so that his enemies could put him to death. And again, the focus is on the death of Jesus. 
<clears throat> well, as we co continue in our study of Mark 14, the focal point of Mark continues to be the death of Jesus. We're going to talk next about Jesus' celebration of the Passover feast with his disciples. We're calling it the last Passover. Look at your Bible, chapter 14 of Mark, verses 12 to 21. Follow as I read. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, Following, follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he himself will show you a very large upper room furnished and ready, prepare for us there. The disciples went out and came to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he came with the 12. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, surely not I. And he said to them, it is one of the 12, one who dips with me in the bowl. For the son of man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed, it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. I want us to see three things from this passage. We're going to look at the preparation of the Passover that typifies Christ's death, the announcement of the betrayal that will bring about Christ's death, and then the sovereignty of God who has decreed Christ's death. So first, the preparation of the Passover that typifies Christ's death. Literally, it says, on the first day of unleavened. Now, this refers to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was one of seven feasts that was established by God for the Jewish people, and it was in connection with their exodus out of Egypt. The people were told to eat unleavened bread for seven days. Why unleavened bread? Well, as you know, leaven or yeast makes a, a, the, the dough rise, and it's to indicate that they had to make a hasty departure out of Egypt, and there wasn't time for, for the, the dough to rise, and so the leaven was a picture of their hasty retreat out of Egypt. But it says for, in our text, on the first day of unleavened bread. Now, according to the original institution of the Passover lamb, it was sacrificed on the 14th day of Nisan, and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread began on the 15th. But over time, apparently the rabbinic literature says that the 14th of Nisan was the day that the Passover lamb was killed, and that came to be called the first day of unleavened bread. So you have these two feasts, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and they were connected to one another. The Feast of Unleavened Bread followed the Passover. What was the Passover? Well, as you remember, the final plague upon the Egyptians that sprang the people out of Egypt was the death of the firstborn. The angel was going to pass over the houses of the Egyptians and the Hebrews, and the Hebrews were, were told that that death angel is going to kill the firstborn male son, firstborn animal in that house, unless you kill a lamb, put its blood on the doorpost and lintel. When the angel of the Lord sees the blood, he will pass over that house. It will be spared judgment. So these are the feasts that are in view, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
And Jesus gives instructions to his disciples regarding preparation for the Passover. The day was a day when the Passover lamb was to be slain, the 14th day of Nisan. This was Thursday. Jesus would be killed the next day. Now, the last record we have of Jesus doing anything was Tuesday. What did he do on Wednesday? We're not told. Presumably, he was with his friends in Bethany. But this is Thursday. Thursday morning. That evening, they had to celebrate the Passover. So his disciples come to him and they they say, Lord, where should we prepare the Passover? You see, they recognized that Jesus was kind of the family head. He was like the father. And he would be the host at the Passover meal. And the other disciples would be the servants. And so it would be their job to prepare for the Passover. In response, then, to his their question, where should we prepare it? He sends two of his disciples. Now, Luke tells us that they were Peter and John that he sent. Mark doesn't tell us that. And we read in verse 13, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Now, commentators tell us it would have been easy to recognize this man because typically men did not carry water. Men carried wineskins of wine, but the women were the ones who carried the water. So if you see a man carrying water, that's your guy. So it wouldn't have been hard for them to pick out this particular man. And then uh, we read, um, wherever he enters, I'm sorry, go into the city and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room? in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples. So they meet this man. He's a servant or a son. They follow him. He takes them to a home, and they ask the owner of the home, you know, where's the room where I might eat the Passover with, um, with my followers? Um, the room was large, ample space. It was an upper room. It was built for retirement and quiet. The room was, it says, literally strewn or spread with couches and furniture, everything they needed to celebrate the feast. Now, the question arises, who was this man that would direct them to the house and the man who would open his home to Jesus, to the upper room? Quite obviously, he was a disciple of Jesus, and he was evidently making his resources disposable to Jesus, at the disposal of Jesus. I've got a home, I've got an upper room, Jesus, you may use that room. Now, not only was he a disciple, but he was, he was probably taking a risk here. Jesus was a hated man by this time. He was hunted. And to identify with Jesus could have been risky business. It's like the faithful people who housed Jews during Nazi Germany, right? They were putting their lives at risk to do that because the Nazis were hunting down the Jewish people to put them in concentration camps and kill them. And this man was taking a risk to identify with Jesus. That's probably part of the reason that it was done in a secretive way, a bit of a clandestine way. The other reason it was done rather secretly, the commentators suggest, is to hide it from Judas. Judas was looking to betray Jesus, and Jesus knew it. But Jesus knowing he was going to be betrayed, also had a a, a right sense of the timing of that. It couldn't happen too soon. And if Judas knew where they were going to meet, he could have perhaps turned Jesus in. They could have met him and arrested him there. 
But you see, Jesus knew that it wasn't going to be the time for him to be arrested. He needed to accomplish what he did in that upper room. And if you remember in the upper room there in John 14, that's where Jesus washed the disciples' feet. He gave them a powerful example of servanthood, as I have done, you need to do to one another. He gave what's called the upper room discourse in which he prepped them for his upcoming death and departure. He was preparing them. I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. It was in that upper room that he uttered what's called the high priestly prayer recorded in John 17. You see, these things had to happen before he was arrested. And so part of the reason for Jesus making these arrangements secretly is to keep it from Judas so that Jesus would not be arrested too soon. Perhaps the most obvious question is, how did Jesus know? He says to these guys, you're going to meet this guy carrying water, and he's, you know, follow him, he's going to take you to your house, and the man's going to say, here's the upper room. How did Jesus know that? Did he make preparations in advance? Or was this an occasion where Jesus tapped into his omniscience? Remember, we saw in a previous message that the person of Jesus has two natures a divine nature, and a human nature. He is the God-man. And sometimes his divine nature communicated to his human nature. For example, when he said to Peter, hey, cast out your line, you're going to catch a fish, and there's going to be a coin in the mouth. Now, I'm a fisherman, but there's no way I or any other fisherman are going to be able to do that, right? That was Jesus using his omniscience to know that. So was it an occasion when Jesus' divine nature communicated knowledge to his human nature? Possibly. Or had he made arrangements in advance? The answer, I don't know, and I don't think that anybody can answer that question. But <clears throat> the preparations were made in accordance. Um, we've seen first the instructions that Jesus gives regarding the preparation. Now the preparations made in accordance with Jesus' instructions. What happens when they come to where Jesus went? They see the man carrying the water, just as Jesus said. They follow him. They go to the house. Just as Jesus said, the man says, I've got an upper room for you to celebrate the Passover. The point is that they found it just as he had told them. Jesus told them what to do. And lo and behold, it happened just as Jesus said it would. So the preparation is made on Thursday for the Passover meal to be celebrated that evening, that Thursday evening. And there would have been the purchase. What would these two men have had to do? They would have had to purchase a Passover lamb, purchase unleavened bread, bitter herbs, which symbolized their bitter experience in Egypt. They would have um, gotten some wine. They would have prepared the lamb. They would have made a sauce of dried stewed fig, uh, fruit, either figs or dates or raisins. It would have been vinegar and water. So they had a lot of preparation to do for the celebration of the Passover. Now, from that first point, what can we learn from this narrative? First of all, there's a doctrinal truth to be learned here. The preparation, I said the preparation of the Passover that typifies Christ's death. Why did Jesus die right on the heels of the Passover feast? It was no coincidence. It was according to the design of God. Because God wanted to make a statement and say that my son dying on a cross is the true Passover lamb. He is the final Passover lamb. 
What did the Passover signify? That when people put the blood of the lamb on the door, the angel of the Lord would pass over and they would be spared judgment. They would be spared physically being judged by someone in their home dying. But God is saying that this pointed forward to a greater Passover. They were shielded from physical death, but Jesus offered himself up as a Passover lamb to shield us not merely from physical death, but from spiritual and eternal death. Because if you trust in Jesus, his blood will cover you and you will be forgiven. You see, the issue in that day is judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. The angel's going to pass over and there's going to be a judgment. The firstborn will die. To escape that judgment, they had to kill a lamb, put the blood on the doorposts, And then the angel would pass over them and they would be spared. They would be safe. If you didn't believe Jesus, there would be wailing in that home because your firstborn son and all your firstborn animals had been killed. That was the issue in that day. Judgment is coming. Here's the way to escape it. Now, what is the issue now? Judgment is coming. The Bible says in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. When you die, you will stand before God, and it will either be heaven or hell for you and me. When Jesus comes again, there will be a final judgment. If you have come to believe that all of your sacrifices are worthless, All of your attempts to be religious and to do good things are worthless to make you right with God. And if you believe that the only way you can be forgiven, the only way you can be passed over in the judgment is to put your faith in the Lamb of God, Jesus, who died in the place of sinners, then at the moment of your death and at the end of the age, God will spare you. You will not come into judgment but you will be welcomed into his presence and be there forever. But if you don't, if you were like those Egyptians or maybe some unbelieving Hebrews who said, "Ah, I don't believe that. That's a lot of nonsense. I'm not going to kill a lamb, put blood on the doorpost. That's silly. That home experienced wailing through the death of their firstborn son. And if you ignore Jesus and his blood and his death for sinners, Jesus Christ himself, that loving, gentle Lamb of God, said that you will suffer wailing and gnashing of teeth, not in a temporal way, but forever in a place called hell. And so the important question for us all the time and this morning is, is his blood on you? Has Jesus' blood covered you and covered your sins by you putting your faith in him? If so, you're safe eternally. If not, you are still exposed to the wrath of God. And according to Jesus, you will experience that wrath the moment you die. So please, put your faith in Jesus so that he'll pass over you in the judgment when you die or when he comes. And you will be welcomed into his presence and not told, depart from me, I never knew you. But now let's consider the announcement of the betrayal that will bring about Christ's death. 
I'll read again verses 17 to 20. When it was evening, he came with the 12. So likely Peter and John made preparations. They probably stayed there. And then Jesus came with the remainder of the 12 that night to join them for the celebration. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me, the one who is eating with me. He began to be grieved and to say to him one by one, surely not I. And he said to them, it is one of the 12, one who dips with me in the bowl. Well, Jesus, Mark is focusing here on this announcement that Jesus makes during the celebration. Consider first the content of the announcement. They're celebrating this feast, and Jesus shatters the festivity with these solemn words. And he begins with those words that indicate strong certainty in verse 18. Truly, I say to you, whenever Jesus says truly or truly, truly, it's the Greek word amen, from which we get amen. When you say amen, you say yes, let it be so. Jesus is saying something serious here. He's saying something. Pay attention. When he says truly, truly, he always speaks the truth. In a sense, Jesus never needs to buttress his words with truly, I say to you, because everything he ever says is true. But when he says amen, amen, I am amen, amen, you know it's especially important. Pay attention. And so he begins with, Amen, truly I say to you. And then he gives them this stunning blow that one of the twelve, one who is enjoying that intimate table fellowship with Jesus, would have such hatred, such animosity in his heart as to be an enemy in disguise and would hand him over to his enemies to be killed. By highlighting that, he says, It's the one who dips with me, the one who is eating with me. And of course, then they would all have a common bowl and they would have bread and they would all, they do it still in the Middle East, right? And they, they all dip into the same bowl together. And at that point, Jesus is not exposing Judas because they're all dipping into the bowl. They're all eating together. By saying that, he's trying to show the contradiction. On the one hand, enjoying table fellowship with Jesus and yet in his heart intending to betray Jesus unto death. That's why he says, it's one of those who's eating with me here. One of those, I think it says in the original, dipping with me. He's saying, I'm in fellowship with you, Jesus. I'm supping with you. But in his heart, he was planning to betray Jesus. So the content of the announcement, one of you, will betray me. One of you eating here with me will betray me. That was the content. What about the intent of the announcement? What did Jesus intend by disrupting this festive celebration with this bombshell announcement? What did he intend? Well, I think several things. Surely it would have have, um, been intended as a warning to Judas. At this point, Judas has not been exposed And no doubt Jesus has given indications to him through the years that he was not pleased. Like A.B. Bruce said last week, Jesus was too guileless, too truthful to not convey in some ways that Judas' behavior was was inappropriate, right? So Judas kind of knew. That's why he probably hated Jesus, because Jesus saw through him and knew what he was about. But at this point, Judas is not exposed. 
because he's being general. Someone eating with me is going to betray me. But, but he hasn't pointed to Judas yet. And so he's shielding Judas from accusations from the others, but he's not shielding Judas from the voice of his own conscience. Here, Jesus is giving Judas one last opportunity in his grace to repent. I know what you're going to do. And I'm giving a general warning here. I'm not exposing you, Judas, but it would have been a shot at his conscience to say there's yet time to repent, throw back the 30 pieces of silver, and not deny Jesus. So I think one of the intentions, it was a gracious warning to Judas to consider his ways. But surely it was intended to call the other apostles to self-examination. Notice how they respond. One of you is going to betray me. Every one of them says, surely not I. Surely not I. They were doing a little bit of soul searching, weren't they? A little bit of self-examination. And Jesus obviously saw that as a good thing. It's, it's not a bad thing for these guys. You know, these were the guys who were fond of arguing among themselves which one of them is the greatest. So it's not a bad thing to get them to think, examine themselves. Could I be the one who will betray Jesus, and so it was intended as a warning to Judas. It was intended at the apostles for their own self-examination. Another intent is to call attention to the depth of Christ's suffering. In John 13, 18, John's version of this quotes, Jesus quotes Psalm 41, 9, he who eats my bread has lifted up his heels against me. Imagine the treachery and the humiliation that one of his own close friends, one of the 12, was the one who would betray him. And Jesus knew it the whole time Judas was with him. Doesn't it highlight to us the depth of the suffering of Jesus Christ? He was a man. Do you like living with someone who, who hates you and has it in for you? Imagine living day after day with someone who hates you. That's a great burden. And I think it highlights the intense suffering that the Lord underwent for us. But a final intent of this announcement is to show that Christ is in control. Jesus is not some hapless victim. He knows what's going to happen. He knows who it's going to happen by. And he's saying, I'm in control. It's going to work for good. So we have the content of the announcement, the intent of the announcement. What was the impact of the announcement? In the case of Judas, did Judas heed the warning? He did not. He was given an 11th hour opportunity to come clean and repent, but he didn't. In fact, we are told in one of the other Gospels that um, Judas added his voice. In Matthew, Judas was one of those who said, surely it is not I, Rabbi. So he was continuing to play the game, thinking, well, maybe Jesus doesn't really know that it's me. And instead of repenting, he continues with his hypocrisy right to the very end. It appears that at this point, Judas is reprobate. He is beyond repentance. Here he's given an 11th hour opportunity to repent. He's got this warning from Jesus. He hasn't yet been exposed, but he rejects that opportunity and he seals his doom. 
But for the other apostles, they respond with some healthy self-doubt and self-distrust. Surely not I. And in the Greek, it indicates um, a negative answer. I don't think it's me. But then again, it's an open question. So the impact on the apostles was to get them to humbly examine themselves. Is it I? Friends, what can we take away from this scenario? Well, first of all, again, we can see how terrible were the sufferings of our Lord. It's bad enough to be hated by sworn enemies, but to be hated and betrayed and rejected by an intimate friend, that is very painful indeed, isn't it? Perhaps you have experienced betrayal. Some people experience betrayal in a marriage. I've known godly people who have been betrayed by ungodly spouses who have committed adultery and rejected them. They say that going through a divorce can be worse than death. Maybe you've been betrayed. I know some of you have been wounded and betrayed, even by your children. You haven't been a perfect parent, but you've tried to raise them in the ways of God. God knows that you love them. You know that you love them, but they've turned against you. with Bitterness, resentment, false accusation. Jesus knows what it is to be betrayed by a close friend. And you can pour out your heart to him knowing he understands and he can give you the grace to bear it. So how terrible were the sufferings of our Lord to be betrayed by one of his own close friends. We also see how frightening is hypocrisy. None of the other disciples knew it was Judas. It wasn't obvious how scary it is to realize how close somebody can be to looking like a Christian and not being one. I think that's one of the reasons God has given us a Judas. If you've lived any length of time in the Christian life, you've seen some people who profess Christ with seeming joy fall away from the faith, haven't you? And sometimes even big name Preachers, pastors fall away. I mean, we've had just in recent decade, Joshua Harris, 10 years pastoring the Mother Church of the Sovereign Grace Movement, and he apostatizes and denies the faith. We have Mark Driscoll. Some people could kind of see through him, but now he's still pastoring, but he's been exposed as the fraud and sham that he is. We've had names like James McDonald, Tulian Chavigian, these men who attained some popularity in the Christian community, turn away from the faith or be proved to be hypocrites. But, you know, God gave us a Judas. So when you see someone, whether it's a big-name pastor or whether it's just a Christian, professing Christian friend, fall away from the faith, we should be grieved, we should be saddened, but don't be shocked. There was a Judas. He hung out with Jesus for three years and none of the rest knew, and he was false. He was a hypocrite. So I think God gave us a Judas so that we would not shake our faith when we see people turn away from the faith. But then another application, how healthy it is to exercise some self-distrust. Jesus kind of let the other disciples kind of wallow in it, right? He didn't reveal Judas right away. One of you will betray me, and he let them sit in it for a little while. Is it I? Is it I? Because self-examination can be a good thing, especially with men who are fond of boasting as to who was the greatest, right? 
a little self-examination, a little self-distrust can be a good thing. And um, so I say to us that we need to have a healthy self-distrust. We are often involved in relational conflicts, right? Sometimes in our marriage, sometimes with brothers and sisters in Christ, sometimes with work associates. We get into relational conflicts. May we learn to be, as the disciples were here, not quick to point the finger and say, it's his fault, it's her fault, but to ask, as they did, is it I? Am I the one responsible for the problem? Or am I at least contributing to it? What can I own uh, for my part in provoking the conflict, perpetuating the conflict? What have I done or said that hasn't helped the situation? It's healthy for us. It's right for us to do that. How do you train yourself to not be a blame shifter and say, we've got a problem, it's his fault, it's her fault, not my fault. How do we train ourselves? I think by coming daily before the Lord and asking him in the language of Psalm 139, search me and know me. See if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. And reviewing our lives under the searchlight of Scripture, reviewing our actions, our words, our attitudes, even our thoughts, and being more scrupulous with our own hearts than we are with the hearts of others, being more sensitive to our own sins than the sins of others. But one final point, much more briefly, the sovereignty of God who has decreed Christ's death. Verse 21, for the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. We learn from Jesus' words here that his death was not the result of impersonal fate. The Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. I'm going to die because long ago the prophets predicted it. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, countless other prophecies predicted that the Messiah would come and he would die. It was all in the sovereign plan of God. And the sovereignty of God here and in general should lead us to two conclusions. The sovereignty of God ensures victory. The Son of Man is going. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be falsely tried. He's going to be crucified, killed. It's all according to the plan of God. It's all according to what has been written that ensures that good will come out of it. This is the plan of God, and God is going to bring good out of it. Things have not become unraveled. Things are not out of control. Disciples, there's no need to despair. It's not helpless. God is working out his plan. The sovereignty of God ensures victory. But secondly, the sovereignty of God does not rule out human responsibility. Notice the second half of verse 21. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. It's prophesied. It's predicted. It will happen. It's the decreed will of God. But what does he follow it with? But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him never to have been born. The fact that God is sovereign does not rule out, cancel out human responsibility. God appointed it. God ordained it. 
But Judas will bear the full responsibility for turning in Christ. He is the son of perdition. And as we close, let's just apply that to ourselves. First of all, say that there is comfort in God's sovereignty. The fact that God is sovereign over everything in the universe, everything that happens to you, as I said before, Sproul says there's no maverick molecule in the universe, and I add to that there's no uh, um, autonomous atom in the universe. Everything is under God's control. Everything that happens in your life, the worst things are under God's control. That's why Romans 8.28 is true. For we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. If God wasn't absolutely sovereign, there's no way that that promise could be true. But he is absolutely sovereign. And Romans 8.28 is true. And that's the rock on which we need to stand. It's hard enough to bear the sufferings of life and the dark providences of life, let alone to bear it thinking there is no God or it's out of control, that to me is unbearable. It's hard enough to bear the dark providences, but to know that the one who has allowed it to happen, as painful as it is, is my father who loved me enough to send his son to suffer the anguish and agony of the cross and betrayal. He loves me that much. Whatever he has sent my way is ultimately intended for my good and if I don't see it in this life, I will see it in the life to come. So the sovereignty of God brings us great comfort. But then we also need to have concern for our responsibility. Just because God is sovereign doesn't mean we're responsible. God ordained that Judas would betray Jesus, but Judas will bear full responsibility for his betrayal. And so we need to give full weight to our responsibility. In fact, we rest best in the sovereignty of God when we have done all that we are supposed to do. We have children who are unbelievers. Do we know that they will come to faith? No, we haven't been perfect parents. We can't go back and live it over again. But as I've said many times, and as we've done with our children, we ask forgiveness for our failures. We humble ourselves. That's all we can do. And then we entrust them to the sovereign care of God and many other examples. Well, let's pray. We'll sing hymn 420 and come to the supper. Father, thank you that you are sovereign over all that happens. Thank you that you have appointed the death of your son and you brought the greatest good in the world out of the worst crime committed on earth, the death of God in human flesh. And yet the greatest good eternal salvation for all your people. Thank you for your overruling providence. Thank you for your sovereignty in our lives, that you are a God who is not only sovereign, but you are wise and good and loving. Help us as your people to stand on that rock. We pray in Jesus' name.